So you can't expect perfection, but you can strive for precision. And I think they're two different things, right? So I think there's some subtlety that you can unpack those words how you want, but I think there is a big difference. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. If airshow flying is the flashy rock star of aviation, competition aerobatics is the soloist in the orchestra. One is all about the show and the spectacle from the perspective of a crowd, where the other is a highly precise and practiced performance, striving for perfection. For my first in-person podcast recording since starting this show, I sat down with Mark Cunningham and Christian Baxter at Boundary Bay Airport to discuss all things aerobatics and competition aerobatics in particular. As we'll hear, competition is much different from airshow flying, and if you're someone who seeks a mission every time you go flying, or you just want to hone your stick and rudder skills, aerobatics could be the ticket for you. At the time of recording this, the province of BC is still reeling from the effects of the most recent rain and disastrous flooding. I was really proud of the local aviation community for stepping up and starting some grassroots airlifts, moving people out of harm's way and supplies into the regions cut off by the flooding. It's a good reminder of how important airports and aviation can be to a small community. As always, if you have feedback or further questions after you've listened to the show, you can reach me through flyingbc.com, and I'd love it if you could also subscribe and leave a review on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen. All right, so rock your wings. Let's start the show with Mark Cunningham and Christian Baxter. Let's do it. Okay, cool. Well, this is my first podcast in person. Uh, since I started this whole project, <laughs> it's all been on online. Uh, Didn't you do the last one in person? No. Oh, no, the no. one with uh, Peter? Peter, no, it was online too. Oh, so. okay. Yeah. I thought I thought you were in person for some reason. So. Yeah, I just make it seem like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been uh, yeah, it's been great. So uh, thanks for joining me, uh, Mark Cunningham and Christian Baxter. And um, yeah, I've seen you guys flying your aerobatics on Instagram, and um, and I've also started listening to the Fly Cool Shit podcast. Yeah. And so like my brain has clicked into like oh aerobatics, I should check this out. <laughs> cool. Um, so I wanted to sit down and chat with you guys. And, Talk aerobatics. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll start just if you can kind of give me some background on your aviation journey and um, maybe how that led into aerobatics. And then we'll go back. I'll give it to Christian. I'll give the floor to Christian. <laughs> um, you know, I, did, I didn't really grow up around an aviation family or pilots. My grandfather was a pilot. Um, but I always have had a fascination with airplanes. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I ended up getting a job with a glider operation in uh, Aspen, Colorado. And I worked there for a few years. Um, ended up with a bunch of ratings and a bunch of awesome experience, which I probably didn't appreciate at the time. Um, and then sort of life changed, circumstances changed, and I didn't touch an airplane for like 15 years. And. Uh, then one day, my, my wife, probably sick of seeing me on Barnstormers looking for airplanes and things like that, she kind of nudged me out the door and said, why don't you go get your license back and uh, start flying again? Um, and so, you know, I kind of got into aerobatics very soon after that and uh, bought a Pitts and sort of the obsession kind of ran from there. So that's, that's kind of the start. It's yeah. not, not a long story. <laughs> Great. And you, Mike? 
Yeah, for me, I mean, I grew up in an aviation family, so we're we're sitting in my hangar here, and my brothers and two nephews are sitting out there, and so we've got six of us in our family that fly. My brother was uh, the first one to fly in our family. He's an airline pilot. It's a triple seven Chuck pilot, um, and so he really kind of was my inspiration to get into flying. You know, I did the classic, you know, kid thing, radio controlled airplanes, uh, you know, the control line airplanes and all that stuff when you're a kid and uh you know building models and you know all that so that was kind of my draw to it so i I think i had a fascination for it and and then i had a brother that flew and so i was able to go fly with him and uh, i grew up in langley so i i grew up really close to the langley airport so i remember when i was a kid we used to joke we'd drive by the sign there was a big billboard at the langley airport that said twenty dollars learn to fly and so we always used to joke about how that was like so untrue right like it was like that's the furthest thing from the truth ever $20 yeah, yeah exactly so uh anyway so you know my brother got into flying obviously and then eventually he bought a, a cessna 180 and got into the backcountry thing so that was my kind of first love of flying and it still is so i've been you know flying for more than 20 years i started you know i did my flight training around here with you know coastal pacific and then pro and did you know all my ratings and multi and ifr and all that stuff and then you know as soon as i got my license i think the day the day after i got my license um my brother terry who's a pilot as well had a 185 um, that he was going to sell my brother steve called me and said you now own a 185 so it was like one of these, you know, two brothers made a deal and said, I think Mark needs one of these. So I think I, I literally had like 48 hours or something like that. I had my private pilot's license and then I bought a 185. And, and so I really kind of learned how to fly in the 185. And then ended up for 20 years kind of flying backcountry, lots of off-airport backcountry uh, work. And then aerobatics came later. So Christian was the guy that, you know, really kind of, got me into aerobatics from a, hey, let's go for a flight. I had done some training many years before. I went to Sean Tucker's school um, and flew with Sean Tucker like literally 20 years ago and did like 10 hours of flying with, with Sean. And then, uh, um, and then, you know, fast forward 20 years, then, you know, I knew Christian and he took me for a ride and I got into aerobatics. So it was kind of like, you know, we went up and did a did a few loops and rolls and did some basic stuff and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool and you know it kind of reinvigorated the training that I did you know 20 years prior, and then you know just started getting into it from there. Cool. And you guys both own extra 300s? Is that one? Uh, they're, they're, so they're a little different. So Mark owns an extra 300L, which was actually my plane before, okay. and then I upgraded to the extra 330SC, which is what I have now, which is a single seat. Yeah, there's tons of different models. I haven't been able to figure out what's what, but yeah. that's we can leave that for another podcast. <laughs> um, so have you guys always been interested in competition aerobatics? I see you guys are kind of training for that stuff lately. Um, I guess maybe let's talk about aerobatics in general. Like, There's kind of air shows. We see air shows, and that's what most people equate aerobatics to being, but there's actually this whole world of competition aerobatics. Um, so maybe, Christian, you want to talk about the differences and what's out there? Yeah, so they're actually really different. So, you know, air show flying, you're, you're flying for the crowd. And the crowd actually isn't a bunch of pilots usually. It's a bunch of people who are there to be entertained. Um, competition flying is really for a bunch of 
jaded, overly critical, angry judges who've seen it all before. Right. Um, so you can kind of tell which one plays to the ego a bit. But um, yeah, they're, they're very different disciplines and, and the way they're approached are actually very different. So just to give an example, airshow pilots tend to have a, a somewhat set routine that they you know practice and practice and practice so much that not only can they do everything in it, but it's almost like they can't do it wrong. Whereas, for example, an aspect of competition flying is you're given a sequence the night before and you're expected to fly it the next day in front of judges. Right. Don't get to touch your airplane. And so from a discipline perspective, they're actually, they're actually really quite, quite different. So one's, one, yeah, one's more about perspective and the show and one is very much like precise, precision flying. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, some people like to you know, equate it to, you know, the figure skating analogy, right? So it's sort of the, you know, the, the professional figure skating or Olympic figure skating is competition aerobatics. Right. So it's about precision. And, you know, air show is kind of like the ice capades, right? So I've heard people, you know, use that as an example. And I think it, it fits, yeah. um, you know, competitions, figure skating in the sky. And, you know, ice capades is still figure skating, but it's a little bit more freeform. There's a little bit more creative expression in air show. There's a lot of tumbling figures and things like that. Whereas when you watch um, competition, it's it's much more precision. When you know what you're looking at, it's maybe not as boring, but I, I think for people that are spectators watching competition, it's not as exciting to watch. It looks very, everything looks quite similar because it's so precise. Um, whereas, you know, when you're at an air show, you've got, you know, you're licking ice cream and people are tumbling and there's smoke and there's announcers yelling and it's just, you know, but when you're watching an air show, you pretty much, you know, even, even after five, six, seven minutes of an air show, you're sort of like, okay, this stuff's all kind of looking the same to me. Um, so that's why air show acts are only so long, right? Until they move on to the next one. Right. So let's, uh, have you guys both been competing for a while or? Are you starting competing more recently? Or? Yeah, so Christian Christian got me into it. Um, so I've been competing for three years. You've been going for what, like? Uh, six, seven. Okay. Yeah. Six, seven years. Yeah. 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 Um, what's sort of the entry point to that world? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So competition aerobatics is broken into sort of five categories. Um, the first of which is primary, which is very basic aerobatics, all positive Gs you know, loop, roll, spin. Um, and then there's sportsmen, a little more complex, intermediate, advanced, and then unlimited. And so, you know, really, it's a, it's a fairly big progression. So by the time you get to unlimited, you're looking at, you know, vertical outside snap rolls, um, things that are very difficult on the body, very complex figures. Um, but the start is really almost starting from the beginning. You just start with the basics and you build up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, a lot of people kind of start in sportsmen and that's sort of your super decathlon type airplane is sort of very at home in that category. Super decathlon, arguably not really great and intermediate. And it sort of works that way. So, you know, for each given category, there's sort of an aircraft that, uh, you know, kind of works in that category. So as you move up, you sort of by default end up having to move up in aircraft too. Okay, yeah. So it's not a short journey by any stretch. Um, I've been about 10 years of pretty solid aerobatics to get to where I am. Just I just did my first uh, competition in Unlimited. Okay. Um, so it's not something that happens you, you can't quickly. You can go buy an extra and then dive into Unlimited. 
No, and I, you know there there are people that, that do. Um, they 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 don't usually try to dive into unlimited, um, but they will try to dive into advanced or even intermediate. And to be perfectly honest, most of them get frustrated and give up very very quickly. Uh, and they, you know competition flying isn't for everybody, but typically the people that are kind of jumping into oh I'm, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna go right to the top, they don't, they don't last. Kind of got to build that foundation first, I imagine. Yeah, and, you know I made a kind of a quip about the judges, but. You know, when you go in there and the judges just slaughter your your routine and how you did, uh, a lot of people don't like that that blow, and so they, they end up not sticking with it. I imagine it's got to be hard to judge an aerobatic routine, or I guess you get to a point where you really know what you're seeing. But uh, it seems to me like a role is a role, and like so. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of set criteria that you know they look at, but it is very difficult. But Good judges, it's astounding what they can see from the ground. So it's, you know, two degrees here, it's three degrees here. Um, so you really, you know, there is a trick to, you know, getting away with certain things, but for the most part, they will pick it up. And so it's very, very precise. And is there sort of um, very, well, is, yeah, you mentioned there's specific things they're looking for. Um, like, do you get a certain amount of points for not like rolling out on the right heading and things like that? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, you know, just to go through a few, like, uh, and I'll, I'll give you a good example of why it's challenging. So if you think about a basic loop, um, from a from the criteria perspective, a loop needs to start and finish at the same altitude, and it should be round. Right. Um, but think about trying to fly a loop in the wind. So the judge is fixed on the ground, but that block of area in that you're in is moving. So you're still expected to make it look round from the judge's perspective. And so, you know, that's where, you know, those things get difficult. And yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, if there's a roll on a line, the roll's supposed to be centered on the line. There's all sorts of cr criteria like that. Um, and the way it works essentially is every figure that you enter starts with a 10 and everything the judge sees is wrong. He deducts, you know, half point, a point. Okay. And so that's generally that how the scoring works. That's when they talk about a zero, it means you're like, you really screwed it up. Yeah, and so, and, th and this is a little bit about the difficulty as you move through the categories too. So in primary, you might have a loop and that starts with 10 points. Um, and so, you know, it's not round, okay, down, you're down to an eight, so on and so forth. Unlimited, where you get these really, really complex figures that have all these different elements on them, they also start at 10. So every one of those little elements, even if you fly them really, really well, Pretty soon, you know, a, a few one-point deductions here and there, which isn't that bad, and you're all the way down at a five. Uh, so that's that's sort of how the, the grading kind of. I think works. the other thing with um, the judging, so there's obviously the interpretation of the judge and how well they're trained and how many times have they spent looking at a figure. The other, there's actually challenges on both ends of the spectrum. So when you judge at the lower end of the spectrum, you know, I just came back from a competition. I was down in Borrego Springs and I sat. So when you judge, there's a judge and then there's an assistant and the assistant calls out the figures. So the assistant will literally read the, the, the sequence right. so that the judge can stare at the airplane so they don't have to look at what's next. And so there's someone calling the sequence. So when you're doing like primary, they come diving in the box and you know, they think they're ripping, they're, they're doing their 150 knots in their decathlon but they're like at 4,000 feet. Right. So their first figure is they pull to a 45 line. Well, if you're at 4,000 feet and you're a judge on the ground and you're looking at a 45 line, you're like, 
I don't know, was that a 20 degree line? Was that a 45 degree line? And so I sat with three different judges over the course of this weekend and listened to how they score. One guy's like, well, he's a primary pilot. Give him the benefit of the doubt, 10. You know, 45 degree line, he can't even see it. The next judge that I sat with was like, six. And I'm like, how did you see whether that was a 45? I can't even tell what they're flying there. They could be like straight and level, they're so high up. So, so that's the challenge in primary is that they're way up there. Then you get down to unlimited. Well, now they're down at the lower end of the box, but there's so many things that they're doing that the judge can't keep track. It's all happening so fast. They're like rolling this way, rolling that way. They're snap rolling. They're, you know, they're doing so many things. So now there's a complexity of there's so many pieces of the figure. How do they keep track of each one and all the demerits? So there's like actually challenges on both ends of the spectrum for judging one's low, one's high, one's complex, one's simple, but it all of those things create complexity in being able to judge it. I guess ex experience comes into play too. As a competitor, you need to understand how that looks on the ground. And, yeah. Well, that's part of the game is you need to be able to present to the judge. So like Christian said, for wind or, you know, there was, I had an issue down in Borrego with my snap rolls. One judge didn't like my snap rolls. So of course, Someone will say, well, that's your problem, not the judge's problem. So you should figure out how to present to that judge. So there's part of the game is, do you have to go and sit at every and find out who every judge is and know all their idiosyncrasies and just decide if you're gonna fly for that judge, right? And right. so some people gave me feedback that that's what I should have been doing is if he gave me poor feedback on my snap rolls, then the next flight, I should modify my snap roll to make sure that he scores me well and make sure I correct according to what the judge is looking for. And other people don't agree with that. So it's, it's an interesting sport that way because you're, you are getting judged by a human and they're not perfect and there's a lot of imperfection in it. And you have to be accepting the fact that there's not perfection. There needs to be perfection in the way you fly, but there's definitely not perfection in the judgment of that flying, which right. is a fascinating kind of paradox, I guess, if you will. Right? Over, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. that's exactly right. Yeah. So, Anyways, I brought some scotch, guys. So we're 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 trying to uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna loosen up we're gonna loosen up uh, so uh, we're gonna loosen up work here and uh, so brought a bottle of scotch here. I got my my uh, my U two shot glass from when we went to visit the U two down in uh, down in Beale. So anyways, cheers. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Thanks for having us. So. I'm gonna start doing podcasts in person more often. Yeah, exactly. You get scotch. Wait till you, you know, if you want to be like Joe Rogan, you actually have to do weed. And then, <laughs> yeah. It's like four hours of yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's like scotch, then weed, you know, the whole thing. So what, one thing from a training perspective too, an aspect of training for competition flying is flying in front of coaches who are on the ground. Right. And so things that, things that look great in the airplane often don't look so good from a ground perspective. And it doesn't really matter what they look like in the airplane. You care what it looks like on the ground. It's gotta be so hard to just even know what it looks like from outside the plane unless you... Yeah, you gotta have somebody down there who's basically yelling at you on the radio, not yelling, providing constructive criticism <laughs> on the radio and uh, you know guiding you through that because you're not gonna figure it out you know, in the airplane. Right, so how, how do you, say I'm, I'm like, okay, I wanna start doing this. How do I do it? How do I, how do I get into it? Um, Obviously, there's places you can go and take some classes and things like that. Well, maybe maybe I'll actually start because I actually just got into this, yeah. right? Like, really, you know, it. I can kind of tell you my journey and then Christian can kind of give you uh, his kind of perspective on it because Christian's actually a certified aerobatic flight instructor. Okay. So, 
Um, but I, I think when you're learning and you want to get into this, I think the first thing is actually just finding someone you can connect to, to learn, right? So I had Christian, like, I, I don't know if I would have got into it as deeply as I would have. I might have gone out and tried it, done the training. And then I'd be like, I don't know how to do this, right? But, but I had Christian to be able to say, okay, here's what you do next. Here's it, you know, and so there was a progression of being able to kind of see the roadmap. And I feel like the mentoring thing is like a number one priority for someone wanting to get into it is to hook themselves up with someone that can help you. Because if you just go to a school and you learn how to fly aerobatics and you come home, you're kind of, you know, lone, lone person on an island going, now what, now what do I do, yeah. right? Um, so I went and did all my initial training. I went to Patty Wagstaff School in, in St. Augustine, Florida. I bought a Super D. But did I think that after 10 hours of aerobatics that I was highly proficient in spinning and doing it? No. And so it, guess what? I came home and said to Christian, you need to get in the airplane with me because I am not going to go out there and do what I did in St. Augustine, Florida right away. Now, after a few hours, I was like, okay, I'm pretty confident. I think I can go and spin the airplane on my own. I'm good to go, right? So you progress pretty quickly in them. But I think that's the number one thing is, is like, you need to find someone to kind of mentor you in the beginning to kind of guide you. And I think that that happens all the way along. So, you know, my, my journey was really, I bought an airplane right away, right? Um, and I think that the other, the other challenge we have in North America in general is, how do you allow or provide the ability for people to access aircraft? If you, if you have the wherewithal to go buy an aircraft, that's cool, but not everybody can just go out and buy an aerobatic aircraft, yeah. stick it in their hangar, and then you know, hook up with a guy like Christian and just starting learning to fly. That's not a normal thing, generally speaking, in the aviation community. So in, in Europe, they have clubs and where they have shared aircraft where people can kind of participate together. Our challenge here is trying to find that environment, which is one of the things that I think we, we need to get better at in general, not just in Canada, but in the US, it's a big issue too. Yeah. So, um, so I think that that's one of the things with the getting started is you have to either find somebody with an aircraft that you're, they're willing to share with you, uh, or you have to pretty much have the wherewithal to go buy an aircraft or you partner up with a, with a group of people that have like-minded aspirations of doing aerobatics and, uh, and then you're kind of off and running, so. Yeah, I think that, and I think that covers it. I mean, I think, um, people often jump to, I want to buy an airplane pretty quickly. Um, I can tell from experience that uh, a lot of people that think they really want to do this, spend a few hours doing it and they decide it's no longer for them. Um, so I, you know, I think one of the first things to do is just go, go get some experience right along, see how you do, see whether you actually do like it. Right. And that's, um, I, I feel like that's something we should all do as pilots anyways, go yeah. do like upset recovery, some aerobatics training. And yeah. And that's I, probably a good thing for everybody to do anyways. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, if you've, if you've got an inkling that you want to stick with this and kind of pursue aerobatics for a while, I think probably one of the first things that um, people need to do is you need to go get comfortable in a tailwheel airplane. A, a very basic one, that's totally fine. Um, but most aerobatic aircraft are tailwheel and most of them are blind on the ground. Most of them are pretty, you know, high approach speeds. Most of them are not, not made to be tailwheel trainers. Um, pretty massive sink rates. So uh, I'm not trying to say it's difficult, but I'm just saying that that basic fundamental, I can fly a basic tailwheel airplane, sort of a prerequisite, prerequisite for going much further. Um, I'm actually trying to think of, 
other than the Aerobat? What is there another tricycle gear aerobatic lander? Well, there's, there's a bunch. I mean, Yak 52, like there's a, there's a whole bunch of them actually. Um, but yeah, for, you know, a lot of people sort of, I want to buy a, an aerobatic airplane, but they've got no tailwheel time. And, you know, that really is the start and accumulating, you know, whatever it takes, but something on the order of 50 odd hours of tailwheel time is not a small endeavor. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to get insurance on that aerobatic tailwheel time. No, no. And then it, and then it really is going and doing what, what Mark said. It's really going and getting, you know, 10 hours of instruction. And, uh, you know, there's various qualities with that, but that's a, that's a really important aspect. Um, but then the, the last part, which I would say, you know, everybody needs to spend some time doing is that up, upset recovery sort of spin training work. And then, you know, frankly, that's just not covered in ab initio training. So in aerobatics, you're, you're going to be testing out whether you can actually stall an airplane at um, any airspeed and any attitude. And, you know, you'll do it a lot. And for the most part, you're going to stall it at a very high power setting, either with a nose very low or very high. Um, and you just have to be able to deal with that with, without aggravating the situation. And so getting that sort of training is, is super important. But then, you know, what Mark said, having a mentor or somebody you can talk to, that's critical. So, you know, when I got my start, I sort of got an early introduction to the aerobatic club of BC. Um, and how I learned was a little bit on my own. Um, but, you know, you'd go try something in the plane and you'd be like, oh, I'm constantly coming out 20 degrees off heading. And there's a bunch of guys there that have a ton of experience. And, you know, 100% of the time they could be like, well, I think you're doing this. Just try this. And lo and behold, you'd get in the airplane. Oh, yeah, that totally worked. And you sort of progress that way. Cool. So, yeah, you mentioned the Aerobatic Club of BC. Um, are you leading that? Club now? I guess I am. Yeah. The charge? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I joined up this summer and uh, yeah, I think that's probably a, a good way for people to get involved too, meet some people. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, um, there's a good number of aerobatic pilots around. Um, we used to meet fairly regularly. We haven't gotten back to that since uh, through COVID, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, my hope is that we will. Um, but yeah, there's there's quite a few folks around. There's quite a lot of experience to draw from and people to talk to. So yeah, I mean, we did have a big out. party in the summer at the hangar yeah. here. So we uh, we had that was kind of our first thing since COVID happened yeah. was we had a party at the hangar here and had a big barbecue and there was a bunch of people that weren't actually members of the club. I think that just showed up and they got they got to see the airplanes and uh, you know get some exposure and that's something that I think all the club environments you know need to do more of and yeah. you know expose people. people can ask um, questions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, so, what's the appeal of competition aerobatics for you guys? I think the uh, I mean there's there's a look I mean you know everybody kind of looks at aerobatics and thinks it's risky. I actually think it's just like any other, name your sport, skiing, mountain biking, it's a calculated risk. And you know, what we do is might appear like you're a bunch of cowboys flipping your airplane around, but it's actually not that at all. You know, like Christian and I often talk about this, we spend more time on the ground preparing for a flight than we do flying the flight by a long shot, right? Like if you just think about my competition I went to, I walked my unknown sequence that I had to do probably 75 times before I flew that sequence over a two day period. I might be exaggerating, but it was a lot. Yeah. Like I walked through it over and over visualizing it. And then the flight is three minutes, right? So the more ground prep, the better you're gonna fly. And I, and I think that that's sort of the, 
you know, the nature of the, of the sport is there's a, I think if you want to get into competition, you need to really want to do that, right? Like if you want to get deeply into competition, you need to really enjoy the process of the, the learning and the visualization and the mental game of having to block everything out and just because that's really the, the main thing of being able to fly well is it's all in the brain. It actually is, yeah, there's a physical aspect of being able to roll, stop all your rolls, but I think the majority of it is mental and being able to visualize. And so, so I think you got to really want to do that because the flying part of it is actually the smallest part of it. And yeah. that I think, now if you're just doing kind of recreational competition aerobatics, you just want to go have fun. You don't have to do as much prep work, right? You don't have to do it for hours and hours. You can just learn your sequence and go fly it, have a great time and then go, go for beers after the competition, which lots of people do. Yeah. But if you really want to be competitive at it, I think it's the precision and the mental mindset side of it that is probably the most appealing thing. It's like a, it's it's kind of because the actual competition is such a small part. It's for you guys. Is it the the process of perfecting your flying that is the appeal? Yeah, it's it's absolutely the the process of and you know look you're never going to be perfect and you know that the judges are going to find their job is to find things that you're doing incorrectly right so so this is like for you to get a 10 in something is kind of a feat right like if you ever get a 10 usually the only way you can get a 10 is if it's just like a straight vertical line or something like that you might get a 10 but as you move up and you know i'm flying advanced and just starting into unlimited christian's flying unlimited the chance of you ever getting a 10 in an, an advanced or even an unlimited figure is like almost zero, zero right? <laughs> like, it's just not, or literally you will get zeros, right? Yeah. So, so you, you're not gonna get tens. It's just, so you can't expect perfection, but you can strive for precision. And I think they're two different things, right? So I think there's some subtlety that you can unpack those words how you want, but I think there is a big difference between those two things, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, um, I mean for me, it's the, it's the decades long journey of constantly improving and, and it's amazing how long i've been at this when i look back uh how much i've learned how far i've come and how much when you know, i look forward i still i still have to learn so you know if you walked into my hangar today there's a list on the board of five or six things that i think are pretty deficient in my flying right now that i'll go work on until they come off that list but then a new thing comes on and so you know it's it's kind of funny you you're always making the exact same mistakes almost that you made when you were five years ago. Um, you're just doing it to a smaller magnitude now. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's that sort of pursuit of precision, which is amazing. And then the, the other thing I really enjoy is trying to learn something new. So, you know, when I decided to move up to Unlimited, figuring out how to do vertical snap rolls was a big endeavor. And, you know, you go out and you try one and you come 45 degrees off heading and, you know, the airplane's 20 degrees off vertical and you do five more and then, you know, they don't get any better. And then you just slowly whittle away at it. And then, you know, it starts to bracket in to where you're plus or minus five degrees. Um, and then, you know, when you start nailing them, it just feels amazing. Um, I think it's, I think a lot of pilots find that eventually they get to a point where they don't have a mission. They're like, oh, I could go to the same restaurant again. Yeah. but. Flying aerobatics seems like every flight you have a mission. Like hundred percent, I, I think that's super appealing. Uh, like I do lots of my backcountry stuff, and you know you you can you do it as well. So you get to create missions because you're like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna head over to Rowena, or I'm gonna head up into the Chilcotin, and you know go to Sunya Lake Lodge, or you know what I mean. So you can create missions in the backcountry. 
you know, when you're flying around on paved runways, it, you know, you still do that, but you're kind of going for lunch, right? In aerobatics, it, it's like going to the gym, right? You, you have a workout for the day, you have a plan, you're gonna work the plan, and, you're, and then you video, like we video everything, we come back and we stare at videos all night long. My wife gets driven crazy while we're watching Netflix, I'm watching my videos, right? And she's like, why do you have to watch that while we're watching, you know? So there's this element of that obsession of constantly trying to improve around it. And certainly if people are looking for mission in flying, aerobatics is 100% mission-based flying, right? So I think that's super appealing. Yeah, I mean, that, so the, you know, the flights are typically pretty short. So my flights are typically 0 0.8, 0 0.9. Um, and that includes the, you know, motoring from here to where I fly to back. Um, but you're beat at the end of that. You know, that's a, you're whipped mentally. You sit down to do the logbook and you're staring at it, trying to add six and seven together. You know, it's, right. uh, it's difficult. So let's talk about that a little bit. Cause it's, um, I imagine like primary and sportsman, it's not that hard on the body, but you're getting to a point, especially with your machines where you can probably push yourself and the machine further than you're capable of. Cause you're pulling, what, what's, what's your G? plus 10 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, our, our airplanes are both uh, uh, plus 10, minus 10. Actually, is it 330 plus 10, minus 10? Yeah, so we're both plus 10, minus 10. So you can easily you, push yourself beyond. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, your limitations are really like your body. Like when you get into the 330, the 330 can pretty much do anything you ask it to do. It, it's pretty amazing. And the difference between my 300 and Christian's 330 is a little bit like my 300 in a super decathlon. Like I feel like when I flew the 330, I was like, wow, this okay. is like, even though they look exactly the same, yeah, you know, to the, to the layman <laughs> and there's like a couple of, you know, there's only 30, you know, 30 digits off, but it, it's a pretty big difference. And so I think when you get to the 330 level, your, your main limitation is your body. And so, you know, in a typical environment, I might, I'll pull eight G's and I might push six. Um, that's, that's like, I don't know if I want to push more than, you know, pushing is outside, um, you know, negative G, so you're being pulled away from your seat for people that don't know, and pulling is you're getting pushed into your seat, so you got positive Gs. Most people are used to positive Gs because you're, you're on roller coasters, you're in cars, you're in life, gravity's pulling you down. Being pulled away from your seat is not very normal for people to feel, especially when you're doing it at minus six, minus seven, minus eight that's a lot of force on your body to being, you know, the blood's just going to your head hard. So, you know, the airplane can do way more than what the body will probably do. Right. Unless you're, you know, Rob Holland or, you know, some of these people that are literally top in the world, maybe they can push minus 10. I don't know. I wouldn't want to experience it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And I, you know, I think the the key point around that stuff is, you know, when I'm in season, uh, my typical flight will be kind of plus eight, minus seven, not that different. Um, but that's after a long season of buildup. And so right. you don't really just go in there and dive right at it. So if you've had a long hiatus, you know, you back that off considerably, particularly the minus Gs. And so, if, you know, from a positive G perspective, you know, to me, they're a little more intuitive in how your body reacts. So, I mean, there's the obvious when you're in a figure, you can maybe start to gray out a little bit, but the fix is very simple. So you back off that, that load yeah. and very quickly your blood comes back, you feel okay. But you're not pulling like sustained G's like a fighter jet. No, it's not like a fighter jet. And so that's, you know, that's why people are like, oh, that's such a high G load. Well, it is. Yeah, but it's not for very long. It's instantaneous. Yeah. It's like for a, a split second. Yeah. Right? 4G yeah. turn in a fighter jet for a long time. That's really, really hard. And that's very, very different. Um, but from a positive G standpoint, you know, when you go out early in the season and you fly a little hard, you just feel a little beat up. And so, 
you know, you're kind of amped to go do it at the beginning of the flight and you sort of get halfway through it and you lose a bit of that desire. You start sweating a little bit. You start getting some of the sort of initial indications of motion sickness. Um, not a big deal. And those go away almost instantaneously. Negative G though, much more caution. Um, so, you know, there are people that, you know, blood vessels, things like that. But, you know, more to the point, if I go out too early um, and push too hard, I'll give myself a wicked hang headache that'll hang out there for, you know, two or three days. And so, you know, negative G, you tend to be very careful with. So when, you know, when you see guys that are really flying very aggressively, it's been a long road to get kind of G'd up in order to be able to do that. And I've listened to the Flight Bullshit podcast and they, they talk a lot about the wobblies. Yeah. Is that like, is that like uh, an onset of vertigo that kind of can set in? Um, when you push really hard? I mean, that could be a subject of its own. It's not really pushing necessarily. It's a disruption. Right. And so, you know, there's various forms of it and, you know, there's no magical formula for how you get it. But yeah, in general, what people, you know, say is a good way to bring that on is to push a little hard, a little early. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, that's something that kind of all of us, you know, keep our eye on. But you, you really do you know, listen to what your body's telling you and you really do just take it easy at the beginning of the beginning of the year. Yeah. So I guess let, let's walk through a competition weekend. Because um, is it like one flight? Are you doing multiple days of multiple flights each day? Um, how does that work? You wanna start? Sure, I just came back from one so I can yeah. kind of give you the rundown. So yeah, most competitions are two days. Uh, in, in, so there's, there's Europe and then there's world level competition and then there's sort of regional level competitions which is what we have here and national level so we'll just talk a little bit about just a, a regular you know average person going to a contest would be a two-day contest um, and you know it's divided into so there's three flights over two days so day one you're usually doing two flights and day two you're doing one flight and so of course, that will all change if weather has an impact, in which it, it does very regularly where you have weather, so it'll push maybe you know, two flights in the second day versus one flight in the first you know, situation. So there's three flights. Um, the International Aerobatic Club is sort of a governing body of, mostly in the United States, but we have Aerobatics Canada, um, but we kind of follow the International Aerobatics Club uh, rules and sanctioning and the, and the way you know the competitions function so every year the international aerobatic Pl club publishes what's called a known sequence for every category okay. so they have a primary sportsman intermediate advanced so and unlimited so they publish a known sequence which is like this kind of they use this uh, nomenclature called a resty which is kind of the loops and the rolls and stuff that they draw on a little sequence card so everybody needs to fly that known sequence. And then that is something that you fly in every competition. If you're in the advanced category, which is what I was flying in Borrego, the first flight that I fly when I go to the competition is the known sequence. And I've been practicing that since last fall. Right. So generally speaking, I'm not particularly great at the known sequence this year, but, but generally speaking, people are, people are pretty good at them. Um, by the time they get to the end of the season, they're usually scoring pretty well on them. The second flight of the day is what's called a freestyle. So it's of your own design. So you kind of get to take the figures that you're sort of good at and assemble a sequence card that's sort of your best features, essentially. Right. So you do that freestyle, that's the second flight of the day. So one's kind of typically morning and the other one's afternoon. And for the freestyle, do they say, okay, you have 12? Yeah, they specify how many figures and, and each 
each figure gets what's called a K factor, which is like a weighting factor. And so that K factor, so some figures have a higher weighting than others. You can't um, do rolls. So you can't just know, and they, they'll say you have to do so many snap rolls and a looping figure. And so when you build your sequence, there's software to help you build these sequences more rapidly. So you don't have to hand draw all these things and manually calculate everything. The software will help you figure out and it'll tell you as you're building your free sequence, if you go and say, okay, I'm done, it'll give you an error and say, you don't, you, you've got too many of this or too little of that. And it'll, it'll tell you what to fix. So once you get your free sequence, um, then you fly that, and that's something that generally you would keep for the season. You would dial in a free sequence. So theoretically, you're really good at that too, right? Because it's your own design, so you're, you're probably pretty good at it. Um, and then the third flight, which is on day two, is what they call the unknown sequence, which is kind of the, the more challenging aspect. So the night before, after you've flown your first two sequences, the contest organizers will give you an unknown sequence, which is designed by the International Aerobatic Club Sequence Committee. So theoretically, you've never seen the sequence before, you know, and, and of course you're practicing these things all year long, but they're always slightly different. And so they stitch together a series of figures and you're not allowed to practice it. The only thing you can do is take it back to your hotel room and walk it, visualize it, walk it, visualize it. And then the next morning you get in your airplane, you take off, there's no practice figures, uh, and you just dive into the aerobatic box, which we haven't actually talked about, but uh, I'll let Christian maybe talk a little bit about what the aerobatic box is. Yeah. And you dive into the aerobatic box and you fly that sequence and hope for the best, right? And hopefully you visualized it really well and, and everything goes well. But usually that's where disaster strikes is in the unknowns. <laughs> do you have um, time to look at the card in the plane? Like, you do, it's, it's really rapid. Like when you finish, uh, especially an unknown, it's literally a blur. You're like, I can't even remember what I just did. So yeah, it's, it happens pretty quick. And one of the things is you build experience, we always talk about sort of things slowing down. So as you get better and better at aerobatics, at first everything feels like it's happening at breakneck speed. But as you kind of improve, things do start to slow down. So you start to again, then have recollection of what just happened in your sequence. Yeah, so you can look at the card. Yeah, you can fly across the box. You know, it, it takes you 10 seconds to fly across the box. So. It's not like everything happens instantaneously. You, you do have two, three, four seconds to make decisions on what you're going to do next in some cases. Sometimes it's like you got one second and you got to go and do the next figure. So it just depends on what the sequence is. But anyway, so that's, that's the general breakdown of a typical weekend. And that, they're the flights anyways. There's a lot more to a weekend that goes on. There's a lot of volunteering and a lot of judging and you know, all kinds of other stuff. But from a flying perspective, they're the main things. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to add to the, the unknowns, um, you are so ta task saturated when you go into that flight. It's astounding. So, you know, yes, you have a card in front of you. It's the exact same card you walked through 75 times in your hotel room. But, you know, you'd think you'd be able to quickly reference that during a flight. Yeah. I really have yet to, you know, find myself in a position where I have to look at the card and actually still have the mental capacity to discern what I'm seeing and figure out what I need to do. So, I mean, even... First, you have to figure out where you are on the card. Yeah. And then, well, and, you know, that? so, you know, my last unknown flight, it was a difficult unknown flight, um, and there was lots of pushing in it, um, but there was one figure that everybody was worried about, and it was a tail slide. And so, you know, you come out of the previous figure inverted, upside down, push to level, and then you push all the way to vertical, and then you had to do a two of eight point roll, and then you had to do a three quarter roll the other way, and then you had to do a tail slide. And so tail slides are the type of maneuver, it's essentially where the airplane goes vertical 
it has to slide back a certain amount, it has to stay on heading, and it has to flop a specified direction. And they're extremely high risk. So any teeny little error when you're going up, as soon as you run out of airspeed, it'll get compounded 10 times. Just, just to, one of the things I learned when I got into aerobatics, people would say this term high risk. And he, he's talking about high risk from a scoring, scoring perspective. perspective. Yeah. People say high risk. When I first heard that, I was like, what? So if you screw up your tail slide, you're going to die? And, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I see what they mean by high yeah, risk. So yeah. Just for people listening that are you know, beginners, when he says high risk, it doesn't mean you're going to die. Yeah. So it just means you're going to score poorly. Uh, anyway, so, so I, you know, I'm really worried about this. And so you know, I come out of the figure, do the two of eight, do the three-quarter roll, tail slide. It goes perfectly come out of the tail slide up staring straight down at the ground, totally forgot what I was supposed to do next. <laughs> and you'd think that you could look at the card, but you picture that. So you come out of the tail slide, I'm back at full power, headed straight down. You know, I was probably only at about 2,000 feet. Um, and so you really don't have a lot of capacity to look at the card, especially as the ground's rushing up at you. Right. So, you know, I ended up having to just pull out, zero that figure and come back in and, you know, start over again. Okay. So yeah. there, yeah. I mean, another way to put it is, you know, sometimes during the unknown flights, I always laugh at this. I get through the flight, and as soon as I sort of, you know, at the end of your sequence, you do three wing wags or a wing wag to, you know, indicate you're finished. Then you realize your mouth's dry. Then you realize you're sweating. <laughs> you know, then, so, it, you know, they're, they're very, very intense. And these take three minutes about? Something yeah, like four that? minutes, three four minutes, minutes. Yeah. 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 So that's, yeah. that's pretty intense. Yeah, so part of the other thing that we reference is that there is an aerobatic box. So it's like a cube in the sky that sits above the airport. And there's an upper limit to it and a lower limit. Depending on the category, you're not allowed to go below a certain floor for safety reasons. Um, and so it's, you can, it's a thousand meter cube, essentially, in the sky. So when you, the very first time, like a brand new aerobatic pilot goes to an aerobatic box, I remember it very distinctly. It's like, I kind of call it white fever. There's a, because the box markers are like these big white markers and you get really obsessed with these little markers, right? And as you kind of learn aerobatics, you start realizing you should get less obsessed with the markers and trust, trying to stay in the team. box is just to fly your sequence. But it is kind of, you just get really obsessed with it. And, uh, but what you realize is how quickly things happen. Like I said, if you're flying like in our extras, it's kind of 10 seconds across the box or maybe slightly less depending on your speed. But you're generally going straight up or straight down. You're very rarely flying horizontally in the box because you don't have very long to fly horizontally in order to get to the next figure. So you're for the most part going up and down inside of this cube that's floating in the sky. And um, but one of the things that people are a lot afraid of when they are a lot of times afraid of in beginner aerobatics is they're always worried about leaving the box. And there is penalties or there are penalties for leaving the box, but they're not actually, you're, you're way better off leaving the box and doing your figure really well than you are doing a really crappy figure and, leave, and to stay in the box. Because the point loss in leaving the box is way lower than the point loss of doing a terrible figure. And that actually, it literally took me all the way to advance to start to really figure this out, right? Like it, it literally, I was so obsessed with staying in the box. Like I left the box on the weekend a bunch of times, but instead I was like, no, I'm gonna fly this figure as well as I can. I don't care if I leave the box. So it's an important thing for kind of early stage pilots to kind of, you know, Yeah, and the, uh, focus the box on. is, um, it is a little intimidating. So it's, it's one kilometer aside. Yeah. Um, it's oh, it's tiny. Yeah. It's really tiny. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there is a, there is a factor with, oh my God, I've got to stay in that. 
Um, so you sort of panic yourself a little bit. Um, and then in that box, you kind of have to keep yourself in front of the judges too, right? Like you don't want to be doing stuff off the side. It's, it's pretty small, but yeah, particularly when you get to the upper levels in competition, you start to worry a little bit less about the box and you start to worry more about where do I want to position that figure to give the judges the best look at it. So, you know, if you think about, again, you think about a loop, you want it to be just dead center in front of the judges. If it's off at the other end, end of the box, there all of a sudden their view of it is you know, not straight on. Yeah, exactly. It'll look like an oval. Um, so that's, that's the game you sort of start And there is, a, there is a presentation score. So there's the, the scoring of the individual figures, but there's also a presentation score that the judge will allocate at the end. And that's kind of where they give you sort of the, oh, he was kind of over to the left, he was at the back, or he was at the front, or something like that. And so they'll, they'll score presentation-wise accordingly based on where you were positioned in the box. But I think that that's where kind of the sport really is going. Hopefully, next year we might switch some rules around. They have boundary judges that give you like demerit points if you leave the boundaries of the box. And so there's a, there's a big kind of movement around people wanting to remove those boundary judges to get people to focus more on the presentation of how you place things in front of the judge. And I think new pilots would be better served to have that focus versus being worried about whether they left the box. It's more like, did you put it in front of the judges, right? And I think as a beginner pilot, I, I wish actually there was more emphasis on me understanding that. Like I said, it just, it took me all this time to start to realize this, um, but it, it's an important aspect of flying competition. Yeah, and I think, you know, one other thing to think about is that box is obviously fixed on the ground, right? Yeah. Um, if it's windy, the airspace you're in, the air you're in is moving. Yeah. And so you, you constantly have to stay, you know, over the box. Right. The challenge is, and you see airshow pilots do this a lot, if they start getting blown a little bit towards the crowd or something, they'll just turn away um, yeah. and they'll readjust their position. Well, that's not really allowed in competition. So you would be off heading and that would be a deduction. Yeah, if you so, split your loop to get away from the crowd. Yeah, you're, exactly. You're not doing so, loop. you know, you, um, there's a big trick to learning how to win correct figures without showing that you're win correcting figures and things like that. And so there, there's a, you know, and like I've said, it's, it's been a very long journey and I've got a very long way to go and it just never seems to end. The, you know, the tricks and the things that you need to, to do in order to be competitive. So I was uh, talking to probably both of you guys about Port Alberni and putting an aerobatics box there. And you're like, the first question you asked was, was there an horizon? Um, so I guess that here, practicing aerobatics without that flat horizon is probably a bit of a challenge. Yeah, it is. I mean, there, there is a horizon to the south almost no matter where you fly, um, and to some extent to the, to the west. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, when we fly, just because it's so precise, you, you look through a sighting device, which is essentially kind of a triangle out on the, the wingtip that you look through. And it, it's helpful to be able to essentially just put that on the horizon rather than trying to guess where along the mountains that flat horizon is. It's no different than people trying to do steep turns, right? And you, do the, you suffer from the same thing. So as soon as the sighting device goes into the mountains, um, you, you tend to see it start to climb a little bit. You know, as it comes out, it goes down. And so, you, you know, you fall victim to the same things. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, the ideal aerobatic box is lined up with the section lines or fields or anything going off into the distance that help you accurately determine, you know, 90 degrees um, and then a flat horizon. Um, and a, a lot of the boxes in the contest we go to, it's, it's close. 
Um, but there are some boxes that are, you know, oriented slightly off from section lines and things like that. And they, they are really a big mental challenge because it's very tempting to, oh, I'm just going to line up with that long line that disappears off on the horizon. But in reality, you should be 20 degrees off of that or whatever it is. Gotcha. Yeah, the other, the other ones are like aerobatic boxes over airports where there's taxiways going in all different directions. Um, and so it's like Christian said, it's sometimes the boxes aren't over fields, they're right over the airport. And if you're not perfectly lined up with some taxiways, it can really mess with you mentally as to where you're, what you're lined up with. I would actually say that we're pretty um, uh, lucky to be able to practice where we do because as much as everybody's like, oh, you don't have any horizons. When I went to Borrego Springs, I was right at home because Borrego Springs is a great example. It had mountains all the way around it, just like here. Yes. So everybody was making this big deal that they couldn't tell the horizons. It literally didn't even phase me because I'm so used to flying in mountains like this. That was like the least of my challenges in, in flying in the contest. Um, you know, the other thing I think with flying with mountains that helps you is when you're doing your rolls and you have to stop on certain points, when you have mountains, it actually is quite helpful because you're like, I'm going to that peak. I'm going to roll my wing to that peak. When you're in a complete, like if you're in the prairies and you're in a box, it's literally horizons as far as you can see. You actually have to look down at the roads or the lakes on the ground. I find it's actually harder to line things up when you're looking down versus straight out to your wingtip where you got a mountain. So I actually like flying with some, some terrain around you. Yeah. Um, high terrain is definitely harder. Like we have really high terrain around here. Borrego was almost perfect because the terrain wasn't so high that it was way above you. So you could still get a sense of the horizon. So the, you know, I, th I think the mountains actually trained you well um, for both, you know, full horizons or mountains. Let's see here, covered a lot of ground. <laughs> so how about, how about you? We're going to interview you. All right. What, what, uh, like you, what, are you thinking about getting into aerobatics? I mean, is this something you're, you seem to have some interest in it? For I sure. mean, why, what, what, how do you think about the journey for you? I definitely want to go do a course at some point, like yeah. maybe go to Patty's or, um, something like that. Um, the whole aircraft thing is, the, the toss-up for getting access to something. Um, I'd love to find a little pits or something. As a, it's always N plus one in the hangar, right? You always want the, the backcountry plane, the cross-country plane, the aerobatic plane. Um, so what would you want to do with it? Would you want to do competition? Would you want to do sort of gentleman aerobatics, so to speak, and just have fun? Or what, what are you thinking? Probably mostly have fun, but I do like that idea of having like the competitions to really hone... Um, have a, have a goal for all the training because if you're just doing it for fun, you're probably not going to be as precise. And, and well, I mean, I, you know, I can tell you that I, when I started off, I wasn't that interested in competition, you know, and it, and I, I think that's actually not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you do sort of need to build some fundamentals. Um, and, you know, getting into competition early sort of helps with that. But it wasn't until I was a little further along and had my pits that I, you know, really started to think, oh, actually, I think I really do want to do that. Like, I started to really enjoy the process of being really precise. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, what people want to do evolves. And there's lots of competition pilots that start flying air shows and they never look back. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah, sort of, I don't know, something I want to try for sure. And if it goes to competitions, I would do that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think for you, like this is a good discussion for you to think about, well, how would you do that, right? So there's the owning the airplane part of it, but it's like, well, where would you go get training? I mean, it's one of the things it's like, so if you own your own aircraft, you can go get a guy like Christian who's got an aerobatic rating, 
He's got an instructor rating. If you have your own aircraft, you can go to someone like Christian and get trained in your own aircraft to learn how to fly aerobatics. If you don't have your own airplane, then you need to go to a school. And you know, it's, it's limited in Canada. There's, there's schools in the United States, um, but you got, you know, Harv's over in, you know, in Steinbach yeah. and, you know, Luke does, has an amazing program. And, but it's, and then of course there's the US, right? So it's sort of limited on where you can go get sort of quality training uh, in Canada. Um, I think there's a few operations um, out in, um, in Ontario as well. There's the guys out there, was it Upright? Upright, yep. Upright, they have an extra and they have a super decathlon. So I think they do a great job. You got Luke here. I think Colette maybe still does aerobatics yep. up in Squamish. Yes, yeah, so you, yeah, so you got sort of the basic aerobatics and get it going. And then there's, you know, there's lots of operations in the States. You can go to Patty Wagstaff and St. Augustine. It's a little bit of a destination, right? It's a yeah. sunny destination. It's kind of a great vacation <laughs> type thing. You can go down there and do your thing. And there's, you know, there's Tutima down in California is another, you know, great place to go. But they're kind of your usual suspects of schools you can go to. And, um, but it, it, I think it takes the mystery out of it. Um, the other thing that when I learned, one of the big mysteries for me was the, all the spinning stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember Christian, I was always like obsessed with the inverted spins because everybody kind of freaks you out. You watch Top Gun and you're like, oh, he's in an inverted <laughs> flat spin going out to sea, right? Yeah. And so I think I there's this. That too, like, yeah, you're, upside down, so exactly. You're so I think people generally are afraid of inverted spins because they, it's like the Top Gun thing. It's like, oh, inverted flat spin out to sea, he's going to die. So I think that I always had this kind of hang up around inverted spins. And then when I, the first time I went, I think to do some training when I first started back in aerobatics just three years ago, the guy that was teaching me was kind of a little reluctant to do inverted spins with me. So of course it, it wasn't really about him being afraid of doing inverted spins. He just didn't want to do it in that particular airplane, but it made me kind of go, whoa, is this scary? And so there was this element of this mystery and honestly, if I was to do it again, I think I would go do an upset course first and just crank out a bunch of spinning and get rid of the mystery of the inverted and the upright spins because that would be really beneficial for your own just regular general aviation flying. It's like a huge learning experience just to get that and do the full spin training and then go, okay, now the mystery of that has gone away. It's not as scary as I thought it was gonna be and then go do some aerobatic training and all your spin stuff is sort of out of your brain and you're not worried about, you know, dying kind of thing, right? Because it's just, it's just not that, right? It's not as scary as everybody kind of maybe thinks it is at the beginning. Um, yeah, and I mean, you want to spend a bunch of time in a safe environment with somebody who's done this a thousand times before. Yeah. Um, so that when you do see it, you know, you, you're, you're allowed to sort of work your way into an appropriate response. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, I, I haven't ever flown an aerobatic airplane that, you know, I, I thought was out to get me. Um, but, you know, particularly things like a pits, when they spin, they, they spin with purpose. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when the ground starts moving that fast, uh, you, you tend to revert back to your training. And if you haven't had any training, that's not good. Yeah. You know, you're, you're starting to pull, you're starting to do th stuff. And um, a lot of, you know, recovering from upsets, spins, those types of things are knowing what to do and doing it and then having faith that it's going to work. So sticking with it long enough for it to take effect. And it seems like a lot of those is like resisting your natural urges. It is. <laughs> like don't pull back. And well, and, and you know, I think the, the big one also is just being able to keep your head about you and not changing. So you did one thing. You're like, oh, that didn't work. I'm going to do something else. Oh, I'm going to do something else. 
that's where you get in trouble. Right. Um, and then the you know the biggest thing is uh, Mark talked about you know the floor for the different categories tends to march down as you get higher in category. Altitude is is everything when you're learning aerobatics. Right. Um, yeah. It just gives you all the time to recover. You, you know the aircraft's not out to get you, but the ground definitely is. And so the more distance you can put between, the more time you have to appropriately react to things. So if I'm going home tonight, I'm going to be on Barnstormers looking at planes. <laughs> uh, obviously, Decathlon's probably high on the list of a beginner aerobatics plane. What else? Like, is a pits kind of a good entry point? Like, if you've got some tailwheel experience and stuff? or Yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually lots of options. And, you know, like a, a pits is a great example. So, you know, a pits is approximately a tenth the cost of a brand new extra. Um, but it is way, way more than a tenth the performance. And so, you know, in advanced, pits pilots beat extra pilots all the time. Um, okay. yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of performance that can be had. But yeah, I mean, when, you, when you're starting off, I think if you're serious about doing aerobatics, I think you really want to be looking at aerobatic airplanes, so, air, you know, purpose-built airplanes. There's a lot of airplanes out there that are aerobatic, um, and I'll probably piss off some RV guys, but, you know, an RV is a good example of an airplane that's aerobatic, but it's really, you know, it's really not a good airplane to learn aerobatics in. And it's really a bit of a flight envelope problem. So, you know, you want an airplane where it's actually kind of hard to reach the margins of the flight envelope. Yeah. So an RV, not very high G limits, picks up speed really fast. You can find VNE pretty quickly if you're not careful. Whereas Mark's extra, plus minus 10 Gs, you're not going to do that by accident. Right. It's actually hard to get that airplane to VNE. Um, it doesn't, you know, you've got to really purposefully do it. It rolls really fast. And if you happen to back the airflow up over the wing the other way, it doesn't care. Um, yeah. So, you know, what, what you're looking for is something that, you know, actually is robust enough for aerobatics. But, yeah, there's lots of options out there for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing, like if I compare the Super Decathlon to the Extra, the Extra, I think, is a more forgiving aircraft than the Super Decathlon is. Right. Like there's, there's a spin, you know, setup that you can do in a Super Decathlon where if you leave the stick in the corner, it'll stay in the corner and you have to actually pull the stick to neutral to get it out of the spin. If I chop the power on the extra and let go of everything, it, it, it'll, it'll come out of the spin eventually. If you have enough altitude, it'll, it'll come out of the spin. So in certain, depends on how you look at it, in, in certain situations, something like an extra, even though it's a higher performance machine, it may be slightly more forgiving in certain scenarios, right? And, and I've never had you know, the extra ever bite me in any way, right? And, and I, honestly, I never had the Super Decathlon bite me in any way either. Um, but I think that, you know, it, there's a standard process to getting out of a spin and power is the first thing, right? It's just chopping the power solves most problems, right? And so I've been learning, like Christian and I have both been working on air show sequences and things like that. And that's like a really great learning experience too, because when you do air show work, you're kind of tumbling the aircraft and you're, you're basically kind of purposely putting the aircraft out of control. And you start to really realize what the envelope of the airplane is and how if you just chop the power and neutralize everything, it'll just fly right out, even though you're completely out of control the split second before. And you don't really get that experience in a resty because it's so, or in, in competition because it's so precision-like. So you very rarely get out of control ever. Whereas when you're doing airshow work, you get way more out of control on a regular basis. And you start to realize that the an aircraft like an extra is very forgiving compared to 
maybe a pits. I, you know, I've done some time in a pits, but I don't have near as much time in a pits as I do with an extra. But um, so I, I think that's another thing is just for people getting into it is just, yeah, you can go cheap, but you're also like, you, you know, you kind of want a safety factor and you want something that is a relatively forgiving aircraft. And so I think you're looking for something that's going to be friendly that way, right. right? It's kind of like going to a racetrack with like a Honda Civic versus a BMW. BMW's got better brakes. It's got exactly. more, <laughs> more there yeah, to help you. Yeah, you know, you got to think yeah, about things like a one seat or two. So, you know, I, I, Mark's already said, you know, you get benefit from having somebody in the airplane with you. Yeah. Um, but S1s are cheap, but <laughs> exactly. So you know it's a cheap airplane, but you're you're in there on your own, and so you can get feedback on the ground kind of later. But, eh. yeah. and then you know depending on how far you want to go, there's um, lots of people who they sort of get through the basic stuff and they want to start moving up and doing more, but they have an airplane that's really actually somewhat limited, and so they start asking a lot more of that airplane. Well, you know, not necessarily that things break, but your annuals start getting pretty expensive and, you know, you start seeing the effects of pushing something. And so, you know, I think you really do want to try to land in something that, you know, allows you to grow a little bit. Right. Cool. So where, uh, well, let's start with you guys. Where do you guys want to go with aerobatics and flying and what's, what's your goals coming up? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, you know, I did my first unlimited contest and I'd like to get to where I'm a fairly competitive unlimited pilot. I mean, that's going to take some time. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there is one other sort of category of competition flying, um, which is more air show like, and that's the four minute free. Okay. And so you've basically got four minutes to show what you can do. And there's, there's very few sort of arresty rules. It's very, it's not rigid at all. Um, and I'd like to develop that. I don't really have a strong desire to ever fly an air show. Um, but, you know, I, I will say that what I, what I do have a desire to better understand is how air show pilots think through maneuvers. So they are much more rigid with things like gates. Right. Um, if I'm at a certain point in a figure, what's my energy state? I, you know, how high and how fast? Those types of questions. Whereas arresty pilots, we take a little bit of faith in the sequence designer that they design the sequence so that you know there's not a lot of issues and so you know it is one of the things that i look at when i get an unknown sequence is is this safe is this something that i you know think i can safely do yeah cause but i talked a lot with uh, jeff ladder on the podcast about gates and how he designed yeah, exactly. stuff and, and so crucial for that so yeah and so you know understanding that a little better a little more exposure there but you know i'm not sure i'm ever going to be an airshow pilot and then the other thing I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to get to the, a place where I could do more instruction teaching aerobatics. I really do enjoy doing it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I haven't really found a way to do that yet, but you know, we'll see. Well, you can come teach at my school in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, for me, I mean, it's similar to Christian. I mean, I'm just moving into Unlimited, so I just built an Unlimited free, freestyle sequence that I started to fly just like three weeks ago. Christian's been helping. I learned outside snap rolls. I've been learning tail slides. So that's kind of all new for me. Um, and so it's just kind of, you know, that journey into Unlimited and how far, you know, my body's willing to go and, and all of that. Um, we have, uh, so at the world level competition, they have sort of the, the world aerobatic, they call it WAC. Um, and then they have the WAC, which is World Advanced Aerobatic Competition. So we, in Las Vegas, in supposedly in two years, there's a world level competition coming. So there isn't a, uh, hopefully Canada will field a team with that. And it's been a number of years. I think the last time we fielded a team in a, in a world aerobatic 
or an advanced competition was in 2014, maybe in Texas. Um, so it's an opportunity for North Americans to go to a world level competition that typically is reserved for Europe. Right. And you so it's an opportunity. You don't plane. We don't have to create our plane. You know, I think that creating an airplane and sending it over to Europe is like a $30,000 endeavor. And you know, it's an expensive thing. So it's a great opportunity for North American pilots to be able to do that. So I think that that would be a, you know, a great opportunity both for Christian and I to be able to, to participate in that. So there'd be a goal. It's like, can we you know, make the team? There's a team selection for that. Um, and then, you know, it's just kind of the, the march into Unlimited and just continuing to improve and, you know, working the, uh, you know, the regional contests and getting better and better there. Cool. And if, so say somebody wants to get into it, maybe can't afford a plane right now, but wants to get into it, help out, volunteer, uh, what's, what, what should they do? Where should they reach out? Is there, uh, well, there's the Aerobatic Club of BC, obviously. Yeah, the Aerobatic Club of BC, uh, we've got a Facebook account and an Instagram account, um, Aerobatic Club of BC. And then uh, Mark and I both kind of post on Instagram fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know if you can put it in the notes or if there yeah, is notes. What's, or, your, what's your handle? CMH so at CMH Baxter, yep. And I'm at Mark Cunningham. Pretty easy. Yeah, yeah find those. And if uh, people want to really get in the weeds, check out the Flight Cool Shit podcast. I've been <laughs> listening to that. They, they go way deep into airplanes the politics and, and all that stuff. But it's, yeah, it's yeah. fun to watch. I well, I, I will say for people that do end up listening to that podcast, that you know, I've done lots of regional contests as a Christian and I've gone all the way to California and there are no politics in regional, you know, like there's just, it's not, it's a non-issue. I think that sometimes at national, when it gets, the stakes get higher, maybe things start to happen at national level. Like maybe, yeah, for sure. There's, there's a little bit of that, but I think at the regional level, which is where, you know, most people listening to your podcast might be like, is this something I'm interested in? It's super cool, friendly crowd of people. Everybody's really helpful. Great example is when I went down to Borrego, I had two mechanical failures the day before the contest. I had a whole army of people surrounding my airplane for an entire day helping me fix that. I had a busted starter and a busted fuel pump. I mean, you know, it was an amazing community. Somebody ha magically had the fuel pump. They flew it over for me. AJ Wilder had it in his hangar. He brought a brand new pump for me. We fixed that. I went to you know, test run it and the starter shear pin broke, how to fix that all the day before the contest. And it was all thanks to the community of people that were, you know, mechanics that were there. I would have never been able to do it yeah. if they weren't there doing that. So, so that's a great example of, you know, a community aspect that, that is at these, you know, these contests. So yes, we do get, you know, critiqued and we get zeros from judges, but generally everybody is in, you know, they're out to kind of help each other. And yeah. And I think, you know, the other opportunity is, um, all these contests run on volunteers right. and so you know come and help out at a contest and so you know there's the closest contests are in you know, Freda, uh washington which is a pretty easy flight uh you got across the rocks but it's usually pretty easy that's the yakima area i think isn't it uh yep north of there yep um you, you don't go there for the scenery but uh go for the company and watch some airplanes it's that you know like mark indicated watching aerobatic contests is nothing even approaching an air show. It's not all that interesting. Um, but if you're interested, come and help out. Uh, and then Alberta, this contest in Alberta. And so we're always looking and for volunteers. Time, Luke's got one in Manitoba yep. um, that he just started this year. Corvallis, they got the, they Oregon. They got the Corvallis in Oregon. They got Euphreda in Washington. And then we got the Rocky Mountain House contest over here. So 
There's a few options that are, you know, within sort of one to two hours of flying that you can go watch and volunteer and participate. Yeah, and if, you know, if, if people are interested, um, the Aerobatic Club, we don't really have a website, but um, the IAC website, which is www.iac.org, uh, has an awesome amount of material. It's got all the contest schedules. It's got a bunch of, you know, Competition Aerobatics 101. It's got a whole bunch of neat stuff to see. So that's a, that's a good thing for people to check out if they want to do a little bit of their own homework. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. We're probably well over an hour at this point. Cool. But uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I hope you enjoyed that lengthy chat with Christian Mark. Thanks for sticking it out all the way to the end. Does it make you want to try aerobatics? Uh, have you taken some lessons already? Or maybe you have some more questions. Drop us a line at podcast at flyingbc.com or on Instagram at Flying British Columbia. And who knows, maybe we'll do a follow-up with them. As I mentioned in the show, one of the podcasts I've been enjoying lately is Fly Cool Shit with Mark Pollard and Jeff Petroselli. They have a lot of fun on the show, and whether you're into aerobatics or not, you're going to enjoy it. They get into the nitty-gritty, but they have a lot of fun with it. And they talk a lot of smack and uh but they also have some of the biggest names in air shows and aerobatics on the show and it's uh, i've learned a ton of just by listening in and also it was great to see ryan bring the cardinal aviation podcast back this week with uh gord on the show and they talk about a lot of important topics so give those shows a listen if you haven't already i've had a crazy busy work schedule this fall so this would probably be the last podcast this year but I've got a few more in the works, plus some other fun projects for 2022. Join the mailing list at flyingbc.com to hear about it all first. Stay safe, enjoy the holidays, and I'll see you in the new year. Now you have control.